And you'll notice the sermon is supposed to be 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. This is another one of those sections where both the chapter division and a number of the verse divisions are not very good. And so I won't be following them. I'll be talking about A and B of verses and including a verse in the next chapter. And the reason I do that is because it's important to keep the clump together. We'll be splitting this into two sermons, but the the main thought needs to be unified. And in that mind, I'm actually going to start reading at the beginning of the chapter because I want to bring in the context of this. Uh, this passage is difficult. It starts off, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And in verse 17, it says, Go out from their midst and be separate from them. And this has become a real fighting point within the church to the detriment of the church. On the one hand, you have people who take it very far. They, Anybody who has any problem in their preaching or any denomination that has any problem in any of its member elders is to be separated from. And we ran into this problem a few years ago when we wanted to be friendly with the OPC. There was some who said, oh, but the OPC allows you know, people who don't believe in creation, people who do this, people who do that. And as I'm listening to their arguments, I'm saying, first of all, we have men who do that. And second of all, in your group are people who do that. <laughs> Uh, but they use it as a crutch and an excuse to have schism after schism. And, you know, me and my followers becomes the only thing that's left. And it's devastating to the church. On the other hand, though, it's equally devastating. You have people who say, oh, you know, love should be for everyone. Not biblical love, but love of sin and love of apostasy is not a good thing. What ends up happening when they love everyone and welcome everyone and will work in cooperation and fellowship with everyone, and the, you know, the, the pastor who comes and preaches while I'm out, he may not share my views, and he'll start preaching something totally contrary to what I say and what the Bible says. That's what happens. And what happens within the church body, you have more and more people who don't agree with the basic doctrines of the Bible, and what happens? You have more and more who aren't even converted but are members. What happens eventually, you become an unbelieving body, and the pastor gets sent away, and an unbelieving pastor gets brought in. And we've seen that happen as well. So a, a biblical right understanding of this very divisive passage is important. And I call it divisive because I think it's intended to divide. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, 18-19, is talking about the, the following of, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow this, you know, excellent rhetorician who's teaching you know, Greek philosophy mixed in with a little Bible. Uh, he's very upset and rebukes them for that. And then at the end of the book, near close to the end of the book in 11, he says, in the first place, when you come together, he's speaking of communion. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Well, he's condemned that earlier, but listen to what he says here. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And the genuine among them were the ones who would not submit to false teachers and teachers who wouldn't teach the truth of God or the whole truth or you know, who, who peddled it so that it sounded good and appealing. 
But note, there must be factions. The believers and the unbelievers, the believers who don't want to follow the whole counsel of God and ones who do, there will end up eventually being a division between them. If they aren't reconciled through the teaching, if the people aren't brought up to understand and submit to the counsel and wisdom of God. So anyway, this is a very divisive passage, one that I probably would not preach on unless I was going through this book, which is another one of the reasons why I like to go through books. I have to tackle the things that are going to get me in trouble. Even within this denomination, there are people on both sides, people who are pretty extreme in their separation, people who don't believe in any separation. Uh, officially, the Presbytery will ask, and I don't think they were to deign somebody who admitted they didn't believe in any separation, but uh, we have them. Anyway, let us read starting at chapter 6, verse 1, and continuing through chapter 7, verse 1. It's a short chapter, so it's not as long as it sounds. A lot shorter than our Old Testament reading, like one-third. Okay, working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and inflictions and hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, and truthful speech in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this difficult passage, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear, to understand, to receive these things, that we might indeed grow in our knowledge and understanding of you, grow in our purity and our holiness, 
grow in our godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in reading commentators, particularly the more modern ones, mm. almost exclusively the more modern ones, they try to make this a parenthetical statement that has nothing to do with the context. That it's something, and some have even suggested that it was added later and it wasn't Paul who wrote it. Uh, to them I say, nonsense. This is a continuation of the previous section. As we will see when we consider the context, that this do not be unequally yoked goes with widening their hearts. What was the problem with widening their hearts? Why were their hearts not full with the servants of Christ? Because they were being led astray by false teachers, by teachers who soft-pedaled the word of God, telling them only what tickled their ears, nothing that would offend them. By false teachers who were trying to change the Christian faith, use it as a, a resource to draw people from so that they could build up their own philosophical school of thought, along with the great sin. The Jews who were unbelieving or didn't like that Christ was crucified or didn't like that with Christ's coming, the Old Testament ceremonial law had been fulfilled. We now have the real Christ we can see. We don't need those weak things anymore. And so all of these people were dividing the church and leading people away from Christ and away from the ministry that Paul had of sharing with them the whole counsel of God something I think is just so critical and so lacking in our modern age. And it's in that context that we come to the verse, you know, oh, widen your hearts, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think the two are intricately connected, as we shall see. But first, we have this visual concept of yoking. Now, when I was in Cambodia, I saw a yoke of oxen or well, they were either water buffaloes, but many people were getting selling off the water buffaloes and getting cows, and you're doing the same thing with a pair of cows because cows were much more valuable in the long term. And sometimes they only used one, but if you had a big field or particularly tougher ground, you know, they would wait for the field to be flooded with water and then plow it, so it was pretty easy even though it was clay. But clay dries out, it gets hard as a rock, you needed at least two. And they would yoke them together. Uh, nowadays, though, many of them use machine cows, which are these two-wheeled, it looks kind of like a rotor tiller with a very long handle, and they use them to drive trucks and carts and to plow the field, and they use them, actually tie them to a generator by disconnecting the wheels, make electricity. Anyway, I digress. One is not always enough. The yoke helps to distribute the weight. The purpose of the yoke was so that two animals pushing together could do more work than one. Now, what happens if you were to take, say, your donkey and put it in the yoke with the, with the ox? Um, is the donkey going to add? The donkey has power. He can add his power to the ox, right? Well, is that going to work? No. In fact, you'll probably get less pulling power with a donkey yoked, and that's kind of what it's talking about. It'd be even sillier for you to yoke your dog to the cow. No, it's not going to work. Uh, the size and power have to be the same for yoke to be able to provide more value. And in fact, I was talking to somebody over there who was a farmer, and he was saying they have to actually match the cows. 
you have to be careful. They're both the same stature, the same height, but also the same strength. If they're not, it'll cause problems and you'll always be going off to one side or the other. And so it's important that you be equally yoked. In the Old Testament, we read, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, cross-pollination we can understand. If you have ever grown tomatoes and you grow two kinds next to each other, what happens? You don't get either of the right tomato. They're both different, and they may be, if you're trying to sell them, they may be useless. You may not be able to sell them. Uh, Same with grapes. The grape flavor type will be different if you grow them too close together. That's why it's important to remember to keep those separate. Now, when we make a field for pasture, we grow all different kinds of things because we're not worried about the grain. We're worried about the nutrition. But hybridized things are not always good. We already talked about uh, two dissimilar animals, an ox and a donkey. It's just absurd. The oxen were much bigger and stronger than a regular cow. They were more like a water buffalo. And donkeys are small. They're not even as big as a horse. So we can understand that. And we can understand the illustration. Sure, you don't do that. Uh, Shall not... When did I put the verse? You shall not, you shall keep my statutes, Leviticus 19.19. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. What happens when you breed a horse and a donkey, you get a mule. Uh, Not really as useful, not able to breed anyway. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seeds, we just discussed that. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made from two kinds of material. Hmm. What's the issue with my wool polyester blend jacket? Is there a problem, a logical problem? Not really. By mixing two fabrics, you can get a stronger fabric. So is this about the wisest way to run our life, to make our farm work, to wear our clothes? No. Right? It's not about that. This is about the Old Testament ceremonial law. Neither Deuteronomy, nor Leviticus, nor Paul are talking about the value of improved work by making sure your animals are matched when you yoke them. What they're thinking about is spiritual. And this is an illustration of spiritual teaching tool. And that's what all of the ceremonial law was really about, ceremonial teaching tools. And these laws are along those lines. What are they teaching? Well, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It's a spiritual matter, basically saying the holy and the unholy can't be mixed. The result will be corruption. It will be failure. It will be, as in the case with seeds, it will be a corrupted thing that may not be useful. And the result of a donkey and an ox being yoked together, you won't get as much work done. You'll go off into the weeds. And the clothing is just a demonstration of you know, what you wear is like what your heart is. If you allow your heart to be a mixture of two things, are you holy anymore? You take the holiness and the unholiness and mix them together, belief and unbelief, what do you get? 
moderate belief, no, you get unbelief. And that's, I think, the point God is making in the Old Testament to the Jews and making through Paul in the New Testament. So of the context, I already was talking about the context a little bit in my introduction. This follows immediately on that, sent, that passage of chapter 6, which centers on verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. In that passage, he's drawing a distinct division between himself and the teachers who are attacking him. He preaches the whole counsel of God. He preaches it without adulterating it. He preaches it without watering it down. He doesn't hide anything. He doesn't change anything. He doesn't make any so-called corrections that are so popular in our day. He tells them the things they don't want to hear. We talked about that before. Remember to the Jews, he tells them the ceremonial law doesn't save you. You're not going to get obedience to that is even ended now that we have Christ revealed fully because that was to point you to Christ. And he tells them that circumcision was the initiatory right to the Old Testament covenant. We have a new covenant in Christ. In the new covenant, we have baptism. You no longer need to be circumcised. And they wanted to kill him. Why did he tell them? Because they needed to know. You can't be a Christian trusting in your circumcision and trusting in your obedience to the ceremonial law. In fact, it's unlikely you could even be saved. And so Paul had to tell them. And what about the Gentiles? What did he tell them? Oh, about Christ's resurrection, which they considered foolishness because we, you know, we had the beginnings of science in their day. We can't touch it. We can't examine it. We can't see it. It's not a natural phenomenon. It doesn't exist. It's foolishness. That attitude persists to this day. And also, you tell them about idolatry. Idolatry is sin. Worshiping an idol is sin. It's satanic. It's demonic. You cannot do that. You cannot bring your idols into church and worship God through an idol. That's what the Jews did in the golden calf incident when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. They made a golden calf and they named him Yahweh and worshipped him as Yahweh. You can't do that. It's sin. What happened to Gentiles? You're insulting our honor, our heritage, our craftsmanship and skill and our way of making money, and you're defaming our God. And they wanted to kill him and stone him. These are the kinds of things, though, that the enemy in Corinth would water down, would hide, would obscure, would remove, would sometimes even go so far as to teach the opposite, particularly with regards to circumcision. It was a major issue for them. And that's what Paul is talking about really throughout the book, but in chapter 6 especially. And when he gets down to that final verse, widen your hearts also, meaning give this same great love and joy to me that is due to me as a servant of God in which I am sharing with you. Don't be yoked to these people that are preventing you from giving that love. Right, verse 14, you're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. Why were, they Why were they restricted in their own affections? Because they were following these false teachers and pitting them against Paul and having that big conflict, and thus they couldn't love the gospel, they couldn't love the truth of the word, they couldn't love Paul. And he's telling them the solution to that is, how do I widen my heart? 
and not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Come out from amongst the unbelievers. Follow God exclusively. Then your heart will be more than wide enough to love all of God's servants and all of God's people. Important point. Paul would suffer anything rather than hinder anyone from coming to the gospels, coming to the godly life in Christ Jesus that we're called to do and to be. And this was the big problem. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 12 of this book, 2 Corinthians, For we boast in this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. But as he's saying, there was no falseness about him, there was no trickery, no faking, no subterfuge, no nothing. He was honest, sincere. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak of Christ, in Christ. So what he's saying is, you know, the, the peddlers, as I mentioned a little bit ago, are telling you what you want to hear. Tickling, as he tells Timothy, tickling their ears. So you grow what people want to hear and what they don't want to hear. And even a, God, a Christian pastor or believer can start doing that so that the people don't object. Oh, I'll, uh, this week's passage, uh, well, let's see, I preached in the beginning of chapter 6, but I don't want to touch the end of chapter 6, so we'll do something different this week. I won't tell them that because it'll upset them. And, oh, I'll tell them, well, when I interpret this part, verse, I'll leave out a little bits of the part, and I'll give a different interpretation that's more in keeping with what people will accept. And many Christian pastors live their lives in fear of the Bible destroying their ministry, or at least their job. Because if they, you do that long enough, what ends up happening is your church is full of people who would never be willing to listen to certain truths. And if one of those truths should somehow get out, half the church will get up and leave. It was kind of funny to hear that MacArthur had a big walkout over women uh, just by reading the passage. He was fully prepared for that, and it's unlikely that they were really people who wanted to be members of the church, but were making their point known that they don't accept God's word. But imagine if a church with 100 people, 20 people get up and walk out. It's going to be hard on the church. And what if it's half? Now, 50 people walk out. It depends on how you've been preaching and teaching. If you've never given an offense to an unbeliever and they're happy to be in your church, they could find out one day the truth of God and leave. And that's what people fear. Peddlers will say whatever they need to say to get you to buy. It may be they trick you into buying something that's garbage, or they sell you something that's good, but you don't have any use for it. What is the old joke about salesmen? A good salesman can sell refrigerators to Eskimos. What does an Eskimo need with a refrigerator? The uh, vacuum cleaner salesman of the day were good at that as well. Uh, Paul's saying, you know, don't listen to people who are like that. They don't, you don't want to be sold a bill of goods that, that isn't true, that isn't right, that isn't complete. Sell you a nice vacuum cleaner without an motor, 
It's not going to do anything for you. Say you the word of God without some of the parts. It's not going to be effective in its work. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 2, to say we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's very important, and that's what it's really all about. The, the church in Corinth had this huge problem, these Jewish, unbelieving Jewish and pagan Greek teachers using their Greek philosophy and rhetoric to elevate themselves above Paul were leading people away from the pure gospel and the complete message of God down the wrong path to confusion, to empty faith. And so our context is important because that's what he's talking about when he says this, to come out of them be separate. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, some, I went through that because some have tried to limit this passage. No, no, this passage is only talking about marriage. It has nothing to do with teachers. It's a parenthetical statement that has nothing to do with the text around it. It has to do with marriage. And that way they avoid the controversy about separating from evil. Um, it's certainly true that we are not allowed to marry an unbeliever. God does require us to marry in the Lord, meaning that it's a sin for a believer to marry an unbeliever. Uh, Paul mentions this explicitly of widows when he's referring to them in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-nine where he says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord, meaning she must marry a believer. Only in the Lord limits her choice to believers. The Old Testament says the same thing and gives a reasoning behind it. Concerning the unbelieving peoples in the land that they were taking over when they were coming in to... Um, coming into the, the, the promised land in Deuteronomy 7, at the end of the exile, the beginning of the invasion of the promised land, it says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters or to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Must marry within the covenant family of God. Must marry a a believer, somebody assumed to be a believer, for Christianity, that would be you must marry somebody in a believing church, somebody who has a profession of faith that's credible. But they give a reason. God gives the reason in Deuteronomy. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against them and will quickly destroy you. God promises them blessings of many, but he warns them, you know, if you start in a marriage with the pagans, what's going to happen? Like an ox and a donkey yoked together, you're going to go off from the path into the weeds. You're going to be led astray one way or another. Solomon ran into that problem, remember? Towards the end of his life, he had many pagan wives. He had, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he started going to their worship with them. 
offering sacrifices to their idols with them. And the kingdom was destroyed because of that. Not in his lifetime for the sake of David, yes, but in his son. And from that point on, in a sad state of affairs, they will deceive you, they will lead you astray. And I think that's the same point at mind here in chapter 6, 14 through 18, or in 7, 1. It's the point being that you, know, you cannot be yoked with them. Marriage would be one of the yokes. Yes, that's part of what he's referring to, that basic principle of being yoked with unbelief. But I don't think he can limit it to that. There are many similarities between the Old and the New Testament on this concern, and between Paul's passage on marriage and this one, but there are also some differences. And I'll argue that marriage is not the focus here, and marriage is not the totality here. And the reason for that is pretty simple. First, that's an Old Testament quote. Your Bible may have it marked out differently to show you that's an Old Testament quote, uh, verses 16b, 17, and 18. Yeah, I would rather they put a verse division at the beginning of the quote, but they choose not to. Uh, that's important to know because that's from Isaiah 52. I've lost my way. Yeah, Isaiah 52. Verse 17 is the main verse, but it says, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. Oh, that's the quote. And it's in Isaiah 52. I was going to have us read Isaiah 52 this morning, but I decided 42. The other passage would work better. How uh, in that passage, Paul is, or um, in Isaiah 52, Isaiah, God is speaking of the coming of the Messiah. He's talking about the redemption of Israel. And he's saying, come out from the nations around you, separate from them, worship only God, not their idols too. And that's the basic context of what Paul is quoting, leaving the pagan world behind and coming together as a body separate religiously, theologically, from their background. And so that's an important point on why I think this passage is not talking about marriage. It's really talking about salvation, which in the greater context of chapter 6, how does it begin? Don't receive the grace of God in vain. What is he talking about? You've heard the true gospel given to you. Don't let it go by. That it was God's grace that allowed you to hear the truth. Know the truth. Believe the truth. Put your hope in the truth and in the God of the truth. And not in these other teachers. And so that context is maintained by Paul from the Old to the New Testament. The chapter, Redemption of Israel, the Redeemer, Christ and the call to come back to God from religious corruption and from unbelieving nations. So that's my first reason. The second reason, if you understand it to be referring to marriage explicitly and only, there's a bit of a problem. Don't be yoked together. Yeah, you can say don't marry an unbeliever, but how about 
from their midst and be separate, are you to divorce an unbelieving spouse? If your spouse denies Christ or you were married before you were saved and you were saved first, I know I've known a number of couples who one of them was saved and then years or even decades later the other was saved. If you divorce them, that's not going to happen. And Paul talks about that particular problem in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, The rest I say, and I, not the Lord, meaning he's been quoting what the Lord says, and now he's quoting what he says. They're both equally inspired in Scripture. Don't misunderstand. But he wants them to be clear who's saying this. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. And so he says that here, and if this is about marriage, go out and be separate from them. What does that mean? Not divorce, but live in separate houses? Separate how? Uh, just before that, in chapter 7, verse 3 to 5, he says, A husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's forbidden divorce to an unbeliever, and he's forbidden denying them their conjugal rights, so that you can't separate from them and keep the commandments he's given, thus Clearly, it's not exclusively about the concept of marriage. It is, you can't apply this to the marriage of an unbeliever because that would be yoking together with an unbeliever. You don't do it. But the separation part can't be applied to the believer because he's taught against that. Now, this is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. God does not contradict himself. Men sometimes do. Uh, we were talking about that earlier, that people who haven't gone from biblical theology to a systematic theology sometimes have verses conflicting with each other, their interpretations, and their theology is not complete or mature. God never has that problem because he is all-knowing and all-wise. And God is the one who inspired the scriptures. You know, we can't say Paul said one thing there and another thing here and they're different. No, we reconcile them. It's about more than marriage. And in our context, because I'm not willing to say this is some kind of parenthetical statement that has nothing to do with context, in our context, it's about these teachers who are disrupting the church, some of them with false teachings, some of them with appealing and appeasing teachings. And that's the problem. I've digressed rather long about this, but the point is it's not just about marriage, it's about being holy. It's in its context here in Isaiah 52. It's about separating from false religions, false teachings, false teachers, false bodies, including, I would argue, from earlier in the book, which we talked about in, in its time, teachers who soft-pedal the word to avoid persecution, to keep their church membership up, to whatever their excuse may be, separating from them as well.
This is a very explicit and clear command from God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He gives some reasoning for this. I was actually hoping to get further than this, but time is telling me I'm starting to run out already. We did start a bit late. Reason behind the importance of this command and verse 14b through 16a. <laughs> Again, I'm chopping things a little off. But the idea is we're not compatible. And it's not just we're incompatible, it's we're actually diametrically opposed. One of the early networking pioneers made a network, you know, tried to sell their equipment and their expertise. And they said, just because it's all hooked together doesn't mean it's going to work. They had a wagon with six horses. Some were pointing this way, some were pointing this way. Just because you plug them all together doesn't mean you're going to be able to go. Uh, I think that's an interesting illustration, similar to the biblical illustration of yoking a donkey and an ox. It's not going to work. And in fact, it's even more serious than that. And Paul gives us five clear reasons and examples, and I'm going to try and get through those today. What partnership is righteousness and lawlessness? Remember what John said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So we're talking about righteousness and sin. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 3, 4-6. Uh, there is no partnership between the righteous obedience to God's revealed will and sin, disobedience to God's revealed will. Nor can a believer tolerate and work with those who are working so or sinning against God. It won't work for us. We'll become tainted. We'll become corrupted. We'll be like the tomato that was cross-pollinated and isn't sweet and isn't big. Or is big and not sweet or small and not sweet. We're like that. We're not pure enough to be with God. What fellowship has light with darkness, he goes on. Again, John, this is a message you've heard from him and proclaimed to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Remember the John 3.16 passage. It goes down to about 21, and he says, you know, they will not come into the light because their sinful deeds will be exposed. You cannot walk together with people who are walking in sin, living in sin, teaching sinful things, and we're talking religiously here, and be in the light with God at the same time. Any more than you can walk in the light with God while you're living in your own darkness of sin. One accord has Christ in Belial. Do I, need, do I even need to mention this? Well, I do, actually. Devils will be judged and cast into hell by Christ. There's no, no value in them. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. An example I would give of this is the Masons. I've actually known a Mason pastor who insists you can be a Mason and a Christian. But in the Nat, Nat Geo propaganda piece, and my readings about them, and, and even in their own writings, they say that they have, an, they have a, an altar, and when you come in, you lay down your holy book, 
And he says, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, Taoism, all have altars. Even the pagans have altars. They put all their holy books on there when they come in, whosoever has, you know, whatever religion you are, and they're all equal, and we won't disagree and we won't fight over the teachings. But to say you know, the god of Buddhism, the god of Hinduism, or the, or the 10,000 gods of Hinduism, the gods of the pagans, they're, they're equal to Christ. Can you be a Christian and say such a thing? And of course, the pastor I knew who was a, talked about this one day, he insisted, well, our group doesn't do that. Well, your religious order does. You're responsible for what they believe, and you're going to be corrupted by their teaching if you're in amongst them. Don't come out of them and be separate from them, is the message. What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.15. There is no commonality between us. There is no share with them of what we have in Christ. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We've been speaking about pagan idolatry in temples, and those at home meet off of the idols controversy, which Paul addresses saying, you know, don't judge the people who are afraid to eat meat. The meat is nothing. And he says in this passage, he's talking about their idolatry in, in 1 Corinthians 10, because they had a problem with idolatry too. What am I implying? The food offered to idols is anything? That an idol is anything? No. What pagan sacrifices they offer to demons, not to God. An idol is worshiping a demon. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I don't want you to worship with them. You can eat the food bought in the market without caring whether it was offered or not, if you give thanks to God. It says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord, referring to communion, and the cup of demons. You cannot break of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? And so this being yoked to unbelievers is treated by Paul virtually as idolatry. We defile God's temple. And that's serious. In verse 16b through about 18, we have the teaching that we are God's temple, and we will pick up at that point next week. What I would like you to think of, though, is in this, if you've been following and remember all the things we've studied, eight. Now, this is a very serious matter. This is a matter that is really, he is talking in the context about these teachers or disrupting the church by not teaching the whole counsel of God and trying to make themselves seem better than him because he teaches the whole counsel, including the things you really don't want to hear. And I shared before that you know, when I first became a Christian, there were a lot of things that were very hard for me to hear because they were completely against everything I had believed and known my whole life. But this is a serious matter, and where we draw the line is important. I was in a church once. It could seat 1,500, and it had six or seven, all that were left. On the wall behind the pulpit was the part of the passage that says, come out and be ye separate. They had separated from everyone all the time. They had no interest in welcoming outsiders to their church. They said they had 250 visitors that year. I asked how many had returned. Not one. Not one. 
Uh, we can bring it to the point of schismatic, to the point we destroy the church of God. On the other hand, if you love everyone equally and you allow them all to come in and worship and you have communion with everybody, no matter what they believe, eventually you become one of them. You turn from God. It's a very serious, deadly serious matter. And we should keep that in mind. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray for your grace and mercy as we struggle to think, is this a matter I need to be separate from them over? Is this a matter I can overlook? Is this a matter I can have limited fellowship with? Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have wisdom to that and not to look at this in light of the world. As Paul said, it's not his job to judge those outside of the church. We don't separate from the world. We separate from anyone who calls himself a brother and is in sin or teaching sin or soft-peddling the word. And so we pray, Lord, for wisdom and grace in doing that and help us, Lord, in our lives Think about the promise that comes next, that if we will cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, that you will be with us, you will be a father to us, that you will bring our holiness to completion through not touching the unclean thing. So we ask for your grace and wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen.